welcome to The Hive Podcast, a show that helps inspire you to pursue your passions and ambitions. My name is Jared Spink and I'm your host. I'm a photographer, videographer, and entrepreneur. Join me as I sit down with other entrepreneurs and creators to learn more about their process, how they've built communities around their brands, and the experiences they've had along the way. I hope that these conversations inspire you to pursue your goals. You're listening to The Hive Podcast. Hey, welcome back to the Hive Podcast. Thanks for listening each and every week. And if you haven't already noticed, this is actually episode two of our video version. I didn't really mm, announce the first one because it was more of a test, but this is number two of our video version of the podcast. So if you want to check it out, head over to YouTube slash Jared Spink, me, your host, and you can check it out there. But as always, we have a great guest in store this week. This individual has definitely inspired some uh, purchases I've made recently, and his channel is absolutely amazing. It it feels like you're watching um, a highly produced history channel show about camera lenses. So our guest this week is Mr. Mark Holtz, joining us all the way from Canada. What's up, man? Hey, Jared. Thanks so much for having me. This is wicked. (laughs) Hey, guys. everybody. uh, Thanks for joining me um, on the podcast and, you know, doing the video version. I kind of threw that on you on the last minute, but. No, no, I was just to say, I'm like, I probably should, like, I should have set up the background more, but I was busting my, it's been a, a crazy, this, it's the season of like, you know, Christmas and finishing up work stuff. So I was like, don't worry about it. It'll have to, it'll have to. Yeah. Thanks man. I appreciate yeah, no, it. No, I really appreciate it. And thanks for making the time. Um, the last week of the year, even though always, always. Yeah. This episode's actually coming out like mid January. So it's already 2021 for our listeners. <laughs> Bye-bye 2020. See you later. It's It's been a crazy year. Almost everybody's been counting down to. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So for our guests, uh, or not our guests, but our listeners that aren't really familiar with you, um, why don't you give them a little rundown of exactly who Mark is and what you do, man? Sure thing. Well, yeah, my name is Mark. Um, I guess I'm an editor right now. I kind of run my own production company, so I work on primarily on... TV series, doc series, uh, drama series, all that kind of stuff. And I sort of, I loved making videos my whole life. So like that's what kind of drew that career. And then like YouTube came just into, well, I got into YouTube just as an, as an excuse to like make my own content, just kind of still for the love of video, but for nobody other than myself and maybe the few people who might kind of fall into this whole vintage lens thing as well. And I've always kind of looked at YouTube as sort of like the greatest learning platform ever. Like you could YouTube anything, like you can YouTube how to solve quadratic equations. You can YouTube how to install uh, uh, beams for drywall. Like you can learn anything on it. So just maybe jumping on that and sharing that knowledge with people, that's ultimately what got me into it. So the love of video, the love of vintage lenses and sharing that knowledge ultimately. So yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, dude, it's a, it's a great channel. Uh, You guys definitely need to go check it out. Um, it will, like I said, it's, it's, it's interesting how you do it. It really does feel like, um, like a, a history lesson in camera lenses, every single video it's, it's, um, yeah, you do a really unique, uh, job at that. I feel like, yeah, it's like a history lesson. The, the graphics that you do kind of give it that, that like world war two spy kind of series. I don't know. Uh, is, are you yeah, shooting for some, yeah. that kind of feeling when you're making these videos on, on your lenses? I think so. Like, well, definitely it's, it's, it's sort of been an evolution. Like I, I think I, 
I, when you look at my earlier videos, I, you know, was comparing the stuff and it was cool, but then the more, like, I'm always trying to like outdo my last video in terms of like, what, what new challenges can I bring to myself in order to help tell the story? And ultimately one of the most interesting parts about vintage lenses generally is that they are historic. You know, they, they come from an era that, that predates me. What have they seen? I look at a piece of glass and I'm like, what have you photographed, you know, before I had you kind of thing. Right. So then generally looking into the history of the lens that, that enticed me and that kind of like developed that whole format of, you know, and working on, you know, having worked in history docs before I, I like kind of, the history element just gives it a bit more of a story to tell. And, and then one way to differentiate that sort of from the rest of the review kind of thing, you know, talking about the history about it is to just give it a bit of a different feel. So that's what kind of inspired that whole thing. And like initially started like micro fichi. And I think the first one I did it on was the Helios 44 M, which, which like is a derivative of the 44 two, which essentially was, you know, a stolen optical design from the the German con, uh, Carl Zeiss biotar, but like it was all post World War II. You know, Russia occupied East Germany, therefore all the spoils of the war went to the the Russians, the Soviets. So that kind of like Cold War era is sort of what this is what inspired that sort of graphical element to it. Um, and then, yeah, it just has an interesting history, like like stolen plans and repurposed, and you know, like the Soviet, the Iron Curtain, and all that stuff. And it's just it's just really interesting. So, not all lenses have it, and it's really hard to find a lot of the information on some of the lenses. Um, but the, the the ones that do have a history, I try to like really exploit it, right? So it just makes it fun. It's definitely a lot more work than it should be. Like I, I spend probably more time than I should on it, but it's again, it's part of the fun of it for me, I think. So yeah, what, what originally got you into the, the vintage lenses? Ultimately, well, I've always loved shooting, like ever since I was a kid, cameras, photography. And I think I got that from my grandfather who I think he, I, he had a video camera and I was like, I, can I use it? Like, I don't, I was super young at the time. And, you know, I was like, yeah, here, just be very careful. Cause it's the 1980s was a huge, gigantic camera. And then, so like fast forward, you know, like wanting to get into, you know, be inspired by films and stuff. And ultimately it was weird because like my grandmother passed away in I think 2016, December, and she was my last living relative. So when she passed, like I just felt this weird sense of nostalgia to like find out who not only like my grandmother was, but my grandfather and, and my parents, like my dad and my uncles when they were young. So they had all their old film reels stored away. So I grabbed all of the photography stuff because my grandfather loved photography. So he had all of his old stuff. So I grabbed them all and I was going through slides and watching the old eight millimeter films. And I was like, man, like these pictures were taken with this, like these lenses, like these pictures of my dad when he's, you know, at prom with my mom and, and all this stuff, like, oh my, this is crazy. And it looks on the slide production. Anyway, it looked fantastic. So I was like, I'd love to be able to adapt these to use now. So then I picked up the Sony a7S II in 2016 for like a, a fashion gig I was shooting, but it happened to be the perfect platform, mirrorless camera, and very easily to adapt lenses to. The E-mount is, you know, tons of adapters for it. So I found out what lens mount the Pentacon was, and then I ordered the adapter, and it was like, you know, $12. And then the second I attached that lens to the camera, like, it was like, 
shooting for the very first time. It was weird. I'm not sure what it was, but I just couldn't believe I was able to make that sort of connection. So I knew that something was there. So then I, I experimented with it. And then I was talking to some buddies and then I did a bunch of research and I found out there's this whole like underground for this stuff, you know, like I call it Pandora's box in a sense that the more you look for stuff, the more you find. And then if you're naturally driven by it or interested in it, and I've, you know, photography for me is a hobby, but I'm more interested in using these. The second I attach it, I'm like, oh my God, this is, this is going to be a great video lens. Like it's, it's a fast, cheap lens and it's a prime, which I don't have many of them. Right. Um, and then, so it was like the kind of the quality, how the, like what, in, what was inspired inside me to like, you know, what made me want to shoot. And then it was just basically that's what started it. So it was it was started from kind of an heirloom from my grandfather and to connect the past. And then it just became it's this whole other beast, right, for me. So and now it's all I want to shoot on. It's all I do shoot on. I've been slowly selling off my modern glass <laughs> to get more expensive vintage glass. <laughs> uh, nice. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I came across your channel at like the perfect time because same thing. I got uh, some hand me down. Um, cameras and lenses from my grandfather and being able to adapt them to, you know, like a black magic six K has been yeah. great. They just give, yeah. um, they give such a cool look to, to everything that you shoot. Um, what are some of the advantages you think, uh, shooting these vintage lenses and being able to pick them up? What can you share with the, the listeners? Well, I think the, it really depends. Like initially for me, it started, it, this is a very affordable way for me to experiment with stuff. So initially it was like, if I could get a cheap 24 millimeter lens that, you know, it's 2.8 aperture for a hundred bucks, like a Canon FD lens. And then I shoot with it and getting the, and it's not quite a 1.4, but it's giving me the speed of a, of, you know, 2.8 and it's full frame. So it's teaching me how to, uh, shoot a 24 millimeter, which if you if you're shooting with a zoom, you're constantly zooming in and out to to fix up that composition, but you don't really necessarily know what focal length you're shooting on. So if you're, I like the idea of being able to very affordably uh, attach a single like a prime lens to your camera, walk around and shoot with that, so you develop a sense of this is what a 24 looks like on a full frame or an APS-C size sensor or whatever, and then you sort of that that kind of look gets ingrained into your into your mind. So you're after you shoot with that for a while, like you can confidently say this, if you're walking around, this would look good on a 24, this would look good on a 24 with this composition. And then, so just being able to, and then, and then if you love the 24 that much, you could, it could inform your decision to purchase a modern lens. Um, let's say you want the, the Canon FD or EF 24 1.4, which is a, you know, $2,200 lens. So if you love the 24 that much, it could help inform the, the choice to purchase the modern lens. If you want the autofocus and you want that, you know, uh, edge to edge clarity kind of thing. Right. So I like that. I like that you can, it's just, it's a bit of a, it's a, it's a, it's a way to experiment for very low cost. And then I think through that, like the, the meta on top of that is that you'll, you'll surprise yourself. You might find that you like the way these vintage lenses render the image, or you might see new and interesting ways to package your, you, you know, help, you know, whatever, whatever you're trying to tell people through your photos or video, you can do through the lens, right? If, it, if the lens inspires you to do work, then you will do work. You know what I mean? And within that journey, you'll 
hopefully get some something that you're proud of, right? So I think it's it's initially for me it was cost and affordability, but now it's come to be like this is the only way I want to shoot. So like no longer do I kind of undermine them as you know just B B list stuff. I can sh- like I'm, I'm shooting A list stuff on them. You know what I mean? Because I'm inspired to do so, right? So, I mean, I don't think they're better than modern lens. Modern lenses are amazing. They're also just very expensive. So keeping keeping them out of reach for a lot of people, and it's like, how can you learn something ultimately? It's to use it. If you don't ever get a chance to use something, or you have to spend $3,000 on a lens and you get it, and you're like, you don't love it, it's a, it's a big gamble. You know what I mean? So That's what I love about... Um the vintage lenses is their affordability. You can get really fast glass for dirt, dirt cheap. I mean, they're, yeah. they're super cheap. Granted, you don't know what you're going to get necessarily when you're buying them because yeah. mm-hmm. you can only judge it by the picture, by the pictures of whoever's selling mm-hmm. it. But um, yeah. What do you think holds people back from maybe experimenting with, with vin- vintage lenses? Do you think they just don't, they don't know much about them. Do you think that's kind of holding a lot of people back or is it they don't know where to get them or how to adapt them? What do you see some of the biggest challenges being using these lenses on on modern cameras and, and getting people to accept that they're still great lenses? Yeah, well, I think like, I mean, it, it's, I, I, if you look at the, like the history of photography, like great shots were taken on very old gear. Right. So like ultimately it could be, you know, some of the most dramatic stuff you see from like just world war two shots, you know, like because of the content, right. It's so dramatic, but then you look at the composition and it's incredible. It's black and white film and it works. So the gear, obviously, you know, you hear this a million times, the gear is part of it, but it's not the only thing. So the, the thing with vintage lenses is it does require you to like, it does require you to, either be work a bit harder for something, right? So manual focus is tricky for a lot of people, especially if you can't get it right away. Like you could pick up a fast lens and just, you know, half click that shutter and hit their autofocus and snap a shot. And then you've got it. But like, you kind of have to change things up a bit if you're manual focusing. Like for me, I've been doing video pretty much my whole life. So manual focus, we never use autofocus. Well, even in the early 2000 days, autofocus wasn't reliable. So we're always kind of focus hunting. So I've, I feel like I've got that skill down. So I'm used to it. But somebody who's just starting out, it's like, oh God, there's so many things to do. And like, where's what? And I have to manual, how do I do that? You know, it's, yeah. it's tricky. So I think you have to work at it. And I think that's a deterrent for some, and especially if people aren't getting great shots right away, that's, that can be discouraging as well. Like I always say, you have to give yourself two weeks of dedicated time for something and then, and then it gets easier. It's like, if, if like I, I'm an editor, I work primarily on Avid. I've cut on Final Cut 7. I've, I, I started doing my videos on Premiere cause I'm like, I have to learn Premiere. I have to know the tool just in case I get a job and I don't want to be like, I, I can't cut it because of this. Right. And then it's awkward for the first two weeks, but after two weeks, I'm fighting everything. Like even resolve, I've just started picking up resolve and like seeing how I can edit on resolve. And it's frustrating because I can't do it. All the things I want to do really efficiently, but I know in within the two week time frame, I'll get it. Right. So I think the biggest challenge is just that immediate gratification. But I think in a lot of ways, like maybe that, that hits some people who like to take pictures for very different reasons. Right. So for, for, I know some people who pick it up and it's like the fact that they have to slow down the fact that it's not quite so 
quick. They love that because it makes there's so much of their life is fast paced. Like I feel for me, photography, like I like to go out for a walk and take my time. I don't really, I mean, I don't do, I'm not chasing my daughter around with my camera. I'm not, I'm not shooting sports photography, but I, I'm, it's, it's in a weird kind of way. It's therapy for me because I'm out and I'm, and I'm taking my time with things. So in that sense, it works perfectly for me. Right. But I can understand that wouldn't, that wouldn't be the case with everybody. So yeah, it does take some getting used to. And, um, I mean, having, having a camera that, you know, has focus peaking is super helpful when you're using some of these time, vintage absolutely. lenses. Yeah. Uh, at least you can get a monitor that has it pretty cheap. So that can help you. Um, yeah, that was definitely a, a challenge at first is, you know, learning, uh, when you're so used to autofocus and having to manual focus, it, it can be a little daunting, <laughs> difficult. It's a whole other aspect of the photography, right? It's like another thing you have to, like, I kind of like, it's, it's like flying a plane to flying a helicopter. If you've flown a helicopter, you have another axis to worry about flying a plane. It's a bit, it's a bit easier. Right. But yeah, I don't know. I like, uh, but yeah, it's and some you know DSLRs make it harder too because those the optical viewfinders aren't designed for you to be using manual focus. Like the the dual pix, uh, prism system of old SLRs are gone, right? So mirrorless have definitely helped. Like my favorite thing for for focus is like zero in with focus peaking, but then or kind of ballpark with focus peaking, but then focus zoom is 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 what I'm using the most. Like make sure that I'm zoomed like right into what I want to focus, grab my focus, hold my breath and snap the shot, depending on what aperture you're, you're, you're clicking at. But I don't tend to miss focus a lot. And, and I think that's, that's just through experience and like using the tools of the camera. Right. So yeah, it's interesting. Uh, what are, where are the best places to look for, for these vintage lenses? Uh, if someone wants to, to get into experimenting with them. Um, I think it's, it's tricky depending on where you live. Like before COVID hit, my favorite place was like these vintage, like in Toronto, there's a like kind of a vintage camera photographical historical society that congregates, you know, a few times a year to do these big sales. And I think that's ultimately like I went to one back in like 2017 and you're just surrounded by everything. Like it was that sale that got me hooked on the Takamars, like, which I never even would have discovered had I not picked it up. I was like, oh, like this lens feels incredible. The focus is so smooth and it's solid metal and it's what, $70? I'll, I'll two for 70. Okay, I'll take I'll take both though, right? So that's what got me hooked. But like outside of that, because those don't exist anymore. And if you're not in a market where you have these societies, then it's it's tougher. But eBay has been pretty good for me. I know there's also you have to be careful with buying stuff on eBay, just like anything. You have to make sure the reputation of the seller is good and ask lots of questions and always check the return policy. You definitely don't want to like get a lens that says it's clean, but has fungus in it because a fungus lens is a dead lens basically. But I think, yeah, I mean, online marketplaces are probably the best because you can search for exactly what you want. If you want a Canon FD 50 millimeter, you can just look it up and there it is. And then it gives you the the laundry list of prices and, and through the various sellers. So I think, I think eBay is probably the best. Um, like I track local markets as well, like a Gigi and Craigslist as well. They're not as, um, they're not as, uh, they're a bit more of a hit and miss. Right. So 
um, not as not as easy to get exactly what you want, but you could still get some cool surprises. Yeah. Um, I, f- I found too, like Facebook Marketplace has always been uh, super helpful, but there isn't as That's much right, variety yeah. as you find on eBay. That's right. Um, so you see a lot of companies now, and you've done a lot of reviews on them, uh, companies that are rehousing a lot yes. of these vintage lenses, which are super cool. So what are the advantages of picking up a rehoused vintage lens versus the actual just old vintage vintage lens itself. Well, the, the, like, I guess it's one is more dedicated for like cinematography, like not even just cinematography, but like cinematography in a, in a very professional setting. Cause like you, you don't necessarily need to have all of the, you know, you don't need a unified front, you know, 95 millimeter front. If you're not using matte boxes or a filter system, you, you don't have to worry about, um, like focus gears on the lens. Cause you can, you can mod your lenses right after the fact. So, so the rehousing for me was like, uh, because I've, I've, I've started using these lenses to shoot, uh, like whatever development stuff I'm doing for, for my work, the, uh, and I, I loved the Helio so much when I saw the rehousing 44, two, I was like, uh, that's something I could totally make use of. So then when I ordered it and I got it, I just was like, I don't know. It, it, to me, it represented, this is like using these lenses for cinematography is like exactly what it's, I felt like it was made for me. Right. So like, I'm very biased with, with, uh, my interpretation of it, but it's, it for, there's, there's a whole bunch of people who shoot this stuff and who appreciate the, the look these lenses give them. And then, and then they basically give us the form factor that we, that we need. Right. So if you're map box systems, you're follow focusing, you're putting it on, you know, these are, I don't have an Alexa, but they're being put on Alexas. You know what I mean? Like people are shooting with these lenses, which is, it's an interesting validation for, for using it. But at the same time, it's nice that we have that option. Right. And obviously the, the, what you're going with the rehouse lenses, you, you're, owning the, the optical core of the Helios, which is in a very affordable lens even today, but you're just changing the form factor so that it fits for a professional workflow. But if you could do the same thing with just a standard Helios, right? Or a Jupiter or mirror, whatever, which, whichever one uh, you decide to get with that. But, um, which is nice because it just makes it accessible, right? It's, and it scales. You can, you can scale it up or scale it down depending on, on what your needs are. So so yeah, I'm a big fan. Yeah, uh, they're they're beautiful lenses. Uh, what's what's the name of the company that's that's doing them? Um, you featured them. Uh, iron yeah, Iron Glass. So they they make yeah Iron they Glass. Make some yeah, awesome rehouse lenses. And if you don't want the rehouse versions, you could they have just cine mounted ones, which are also super useful. Exactly. If you want to use them in a in a cinema kit. So let's talk about now. Uh, Let's talk about your YouTube channel. I'm sure a lot of people are going to be interested in yeah, that. So, sure thing. Um, you've had it for a long time. It's changed. Um, the content on it has changed quite a bit over the years. Uh, what originally mm-hmm. got you into the YouTube realm? Realm. So initially, it was it was finding those eight millimeter film reels and then screening those. So my great grandfather who was big into photography, which probably inspired my grandfather and probably that's what inspired my dad. And that's what like, it's, it's a whole thing for sure. You know, like it's, it's interesting, but when my, my grandmother passed away and then I had found all the lenses and photography stuff, I found these eight millimeter film reels and, and on them were labels like Vancouver, 1964, um, you know, CNE 1965, 
PEI. So all these locations in, in Canada, like across Canada that my grandfather had traveled to. So he, so I, I loaded up the projector and I just recorded, like I just played it on a screen and I was like watching a travel vlog, essentially. Like if in modern terms, it was a travel vlog of, of these locations as they were in these years. So like Vancouver, 1964, I went to Vancouver the first time in like 1990. Right. So my uncle lived out there for years. So seeing Vancouver in 1964 was very cool. And then Toronto, same thing. Grew up in Toronto. There's all the, this, there's Toronto, Santa Claus parade in the 1960s, you know? So I basically, I, what I did was I, I recorded just, you know, set up my camera, recorded oh, with a cinema lens and I just recorded the, the projection and just rode the exposure. And then I added music and just some sound design, just, and essentially just sort of packaged it for, uh, for the audience who, who may have grown up in these locations, but didn't have a, a visceral memory of that. Right. So, so when I shared that, I just uploaded them to YouTube and I've shared them on like the, the locations, Reddit, like uh, PEI, Hey guys, here's, here's like 19, PEI 1964 and, and like that Reddit blew up, right? Like people were, Oh my God, I haven't seen that church since I grew up. I live here now. You brought tear to my, which is like pouring in of emotional reactions, right? Like just what these, this video did. So these were sitting in a closet and I had sort of given them real life again and they were having an impact on people. So, you know, the national um, media in Canada kind of picked up on it and did a whole thing on it. And, and then, so I just kept that going for a little while, but obviously I was running out of reels. And and after having kind of finished that, I was like, like, that was fun. Like that was fun sharing that kind of thing and having these conversations and seeing how what I put, put on what I put out there actually had an impact on people. Right. So that's what, that's what kind of like got me hooked onto the YouTube space, like this community and the fact that you could, you could help people, you can inspire people, you could do whatever. Right. So the next best thing for me was like, well, I, I'm, I'm an editor. I shoot, I have knowledge in the filmmaking space. I work in the filmmaking space. Maybe I could do something with these lenses there. Cause like the filmmaking space is just super saturated right now. And it was before. And it's like, ah, like I can't go up against these guys. Like they're already established and it might be a complete waste of my time. I don't know. Right. So this was a kind of a, like a natural sort of in, like it was something I loved and it was like, well, this, this could be my take on it. Right. Um, so that's ultimately where it went. And then it just became, then it just, that's what it became like loving, you know, loving photography, love cinematography, loving editing, video making, and then sharing the value of these lenses with people who might be interested in it. So it's definitely not like I, I assumed it was never going to be as popular as hitting up the, the latest and greatest gear. Cause that's what people are searching for. But I don't know. Like for me, it was more of a, I have to do what I love because this is not a business for me. I do the business thing all day long. If I'm going to spend any additional effort into doing this stuff, it has to be something that, that I'm just self-motivated by. Right. So it's been that, and it's kind of stayed that for so long, which is weird. I thought for sure I'd kind of get tired of it, but it's not happening. Yeah, <laughs> No, not at all. And don't get tired of it because I love it. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, I think that's, that's, that's great advice too. I think a lot of people, um, when they're thinking about starting a YouTube channel, forget like ultimately you need to create something that you're passionate about and that you enjoy. So it doesn't turn into something that you don't want to do because you're making content for others and not necessarily yourself. 
Um, yeah. So how has it grown um, for you and, and has a community, have you started to see like a community come together around that content? Yeah, apps. I mean, definitely the, I mean, it's the growth is, it's interesting because I've tried very hard not to focus on growth. Like it's nice, but like it can't be my motivating factor. Like even in my videos now, I don't ask people to like, I don't ask people to subscribe because like I just, I, I, not that I don't appreciate it. I just can't make that part of my fundamentals. You know what I mean? Because like I'm here regardless of whether or not you're on or not. Right. That's ultimately the, the, the gist of it. So I mean, it's the first year was, you know, I think it took me, I mean, I even had a bit of help from the, from the, the national thing. So it took me a year to get to a thousand and then it doubled the next year and then it's doubled again. So I'm like at 31,000 now, but so it's exponential, right? But if you account for the amount of hours put into that stuff and like you compare it to other channels that are much younger, far fewer videos and see their growth is exponentially larger than mine, that's, it's just, that's why I don't compare, you know, it's like, I'm not in this, I'm not doing the same thing. I'm not tapping the same audience. Maybe, you know, maybe you can make it, maybe my personality is not good enough. I don't know. Like I I just focus on, this is what I can't control. I can control what, you know, what videos I put out. I can't control how either YouTube is going to distribute it. I can't control how people are going to respond to it. And I'm not going to change up something just to like tap into a different audience. I feel like we're losing authenticity there. Right. So it's just, yeah. So I think, I think the growth has been good. It's obviously takes a lot of work and, and I, and I know that, um, and I, and I come from a background of making videos. Right. So, so I can understand why it would be tough and even challenging for people who are new to making videos and don't necessarily know what they want to do, but then they see everybody celebrating numbers. And then they think that maybe if they're not getting the numbers initially that they're doing something wrong. And it's, it's just, I, yeah, it's why I think it's easier if you just focus on what you can control, especially out the gate, right? As long as you love doing it, then have at it, you know, eventually like they all say, like I'm, I'm even with my niche stuff. Like if you keep at it long enough, you eventually will find your audience. Right. So, and even I think as you progress, you get better at it. Like even with YouTube, like I, I've been making videos forever. I had to completely change everything when I started making videos for YouTube because it's, you're on camera and it's like, you're doing every aspect of it. And you, you know, I have friends who I, you know, give a video to and get feedback from because seeing something for the first time is always, uh, you know, it's, it's a, in getting feedback on that is, you know, is absolutely essential, I think in the creative space, but, um, yeah, it's just, it's still fun. I still have fun with it. So I'm going to go with that. What are some of the uh, things you did have to change or adapt to adapt with, you know, to make your YouTube videos? You said you had to, to change the way you do things. What were what did you have to change? I think it's like, I think because you, you write, you shoot, you edit, you market, like even just, you know, tags and titling and thumbnails and all that stuff like that. Like for me, the easiest part is the video, you know, like I, I never feel comfortable until I'm, I've shot everything and I sit down in the edit and I start editing. That's where I'm super comfortable. And based on how the edit's going, I'm like, Oh, I need to, I'm going to do some pickups cause I'll have this idea 
Like I'm going to go run around in a forest and have a helicopter chase me, for example, you know, like that came, that, came, that was a great, that, came, <laughs> that was a great video. That came after that. the fact, like, <laughs> thank you. I had like, I had a whole thing planned and I'm like, I need some sort of like fun hook to like excuse to use these lenses. And it's like, they're Soviet. Uh, I'll have a helicopter chase me and I'll, I'll use editing as a way to, to like merge this stock footage with what I was doing. Right. And it was just fun. It was fun to shoot. It was, I didn't know how it was going to turn out until I actually sat and edited it, but it was, it was fun. Like, and even still like doing this, it was, it was loads of fun. So, but I think in terms of, in terms of like, um, the biggest challenge I think is, is just being on camera. Like I think being in front of the camera is, is a big change for a lot of people, especially somebody who's always been behind the camera. Like, especially if you're like talking to this camera lens, it's different when you're on a platform and you can have a discussion, then you can like, you feel like your personality can come out, you're reacting to things, you can, you know, like, but if you're talking to a camera lens, you're talking to yourself, there's no reaction. So I find that, I find that a bit, found that a bit tricky. It's a bit easier now, but still it's my most dreaded part of the whole process. (laughs) (laughs) It is very awkward Um, initially. You, You do get used to it, right? Um, yeah, you do. Yeah. So what, walk me through your process for, uh, from creating one of your videos kind of from, from start to finish. Um, what's your workflow? Because these videos, I mean, the quality is, is just, it's amazing. Like I said, it, it really does feel, mm. it brings it. Okay. I was a real, real nerd growing up. Like I loved watching the history channel, but like, that's what I did when I got home from school. Like I loved watching the history channel and it, it really does bring back that kind of vibe to me. So I would, I would love to hear your, your process on how you've developed your style and you, kind of your work through workflow on your videos. Well, I think, I think the style has to do with like, I guess my background. So there's a lot of things that YouTube can, you can get away with on YouTube. You just can't get away with on T in TV. Like if you're doing a documentary and there's a jump cut, so you have jump cuts, people, you know, you're, you're cutting for succinct audio. And then the one thing I don't personally like when I, just cause I've been trained, I don't care if I see it, but I, I just, I can't do that. I can't jump cut myself. So I need to cover, I need to cover if I'm going to, if I, if I need to cut something out, I need to cover it. And also this, this notion of, I don't want to be on, on camera for the whole time. Like who wants to see my face talking nonstop? Like, again, this is all derivative of doing doc work. So it's like, I got to show what I'm talking about. So like shooting, shooting is a heavy portion of what I do. So usually when I, when I do a video, the first thing I'll do is obviously I've got the idea. If I'm lens testing, I'll, I, I'll have shot with that lens for a while. I've studied the photos and I'll sit and I'll write a script. And as I write the script, I'm, I'm kind of like collecting my thoughts and organizing them in kind of succinct ways. And I'm developing sort of visual ideas I can do do to kind of cover these things. Right. So, and because I do this in my spare time, it's like, I have an hour here. I have an hour there. I'm going to sit down, you know, write some script and then go away for a bit and come back and I'll I'll revise and eventually I'll finish it, shoot all of my on-camera stuff. So I shoot the whole script and then I'll edit that on-camera stuff, just the A roll or whatever. I'll just edit that whole thing down. I'll put music down on it to separate the beats because I usually change up my music quite often depending on the talking point I'm discussing. Again, that's another documentary sort of thing. Like you change your music uh, with an idea or obviously you can get rid of music altogether, but that's the gist of it. You don't play one track through the whole thing because in your mind it just starts to get a bit repetitive. But um, so then once I've kind of got my, I call it a radio edit, right? Or like a podcast edit. So the, the whole thing will play 
it's paced with music and, and everything as if it were covered, but like you just close your eyes and you listen to it and you can see what you want to do. So then it's the matter of like, okay, if I've got sample shots, I know where to put those in, but it's like, I need to go and shoot B roll. So like, I'll, I'll, you know, because of, so let's say I, I cut the whole thing in like uh, two hours in a night kind of thing. And then the next night I'll set up my, my B roll, you know, like my slider B roll, for example, and I'll shoot that for an hour. I'll drop that in. Then the next night, cause it's like, I only have like hours at a time to kind of do this stuff. So it works for me in, in a sense that it doesn't take up all of my time and I'm able to like pace it out. Right. And then as a, and then I kind of just go through that whole process. So if I have a bit more time, I'll shoot more of the B roll, but ultimately I'm shooting everything I'm shooting is intentional. Like I've planned it out because this part of the script of the show or of the, of the episode or the video requires it. Right. So I like to shoot my B-roll after the fact, I guess, ultimately is what I'm saying. So if, even if I'm, even if I, I need to go out and, well, you know, I've got some samples and I've got some like lens stuff, but maybe I should go and get some B-roll of me just walking around a forest where I took these photos and I'll, I'll go off and do that and just give myself an excuse to go off and shoot for an hour in a, in a forest where it's snow. You know, I love that, but, and then I just put it all together and then th that way it's just like, okay, I'm, I'm visually, I'm, I'm telling the story in, 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 in sequence form, you know, here's the, here's the establishing shot. Here is the setup shot. And here are the, now I can go into the whole like sample shots. Cause I've kind of set up the visual of my location and my action. There's the samples. And then if I want to like switch locations, I can kind of like reset up the visuals. Right. So it really comes down to a lot of just how I cut in when you, when you do TV series work, right. You just cover everything. Right it's probably way overkill, especially for the platform. Like you can, you don't have to go that, that far by any means. But again, I think it's part of why I like it, right. As a, just even as an excuse to go out and shoot because I spend so much of my time sitting at a computer editing. So <laughs> so it's always nice to get out. Definitely. So yeah. you, you mentioned how much of your actual work has influenced uh, what you do on YouTube. And it, no doubt that's because you, you've learned on the job. Um, now I'm not going to ask you like everything you've worked on. Cause I know there's tons of NDAs in the industry and you can't really dive into too many specifics, but, um, what exactly, so you, you do work on a lot of shows, walk our, our listeners, uh, kind of through your nine to five job, like what it is you actually, you do to, to make a living, make a living. I know the, the thing that we all like, it's funny because as I, so I, I'm essentially, I'm an editor. I do run my own production company and, and editors and are oftentimes in this industry. We're all mercenaries as we, as I like to call it, as opposed to freelancers, we are freelancers, we're hired guns. So the production company will hire you to either shoot or edit or, you know, whatever. Um, so essentially that's what I do. I run my own production company and, and through that I get contracts to here's an episode of, um, this show we'd like you to cut three episodes for, or, or two episodes for. So that's essentially what I do. So I'm kind of hired off to like shoot or edit for these series. So, and the most of them are doc TV doc series for like, um, you know, national geographic history channel, discovery channel. Um, I got a Netflix one and a, and a CTV one in the works right now. Um, and then the other thing I kind of, I I've done, and this is where I've sort of incorporated in the vintage lens aspect and shooting more is, which was inspired through YouTube, which is funny how YouTube is inspiring my professional work, which is great, but as opposed to just being the other way, 
Um, so development is like new series work. So like a production company will have this concept for a new TV series they want to pitch to a network. And a lot of times networks who are interested will option it and they'll give you a sum of money to, okay, produce um, a teaser reel or a sizzle reel or whatever they call it, a development reel, right? So essentially you go off and you shoot this, this sort of concept of what the show is. And it's sort of like a... It's, it's like a three-minute trailer for the series, right? You have you interviews with some of your contributors. You have style and, and all that stuff kind of embedded into it. And then you, you make that as part of the pitch. So I've been doing that a lot uh, recently as well. So essentially, it's, it's kind of all surrounds the, you know, the, the factual and some, and some scripted stuff with uh, network TV series. So that's the nine-to-five job, really. And how... I think it, it, a lot of people love hearing this, but how does real production differ from YouTube production? Uh, well, I guess the biggest thing that, I mean, the biggest thing is that YouTube, the production, the, the actions are very similar. It's just YouTube, you're just dealing with yourself. Like you just have yourself really you're dealing with. And on a production, you're a part of a bigger a bigger assembly, right? So there's people there who need to, well, you know, vet ideas. Um, you know, you, you have to like, if you have an idea to shoot something, you have to like get it through a, d- a number of different people before, right? But the actual, you know, it's more complicated too. You have more people running around. You have people with dedicated jobs. So, you know, like I know if you're DPing something, and you're off shooting something, like a DP is like so busy on set. It's like it's insane, right? Like it's nice for me as an editor, I can just sit in my edit suite and just focus on what I'm doing. But DPs are running, like even directors too, they're running around like, you know, crazy dealing with the production, dealing with restraints of time, dealing with studio or network. It's, it's, it's chaos, I would say. And I think that's why you need the support of the additional people. It's just, it's too much to do on your own. Whereas YouTube, you, you can do it on your own. And I think that's, that's good, right? They're, they're two very different mediums. So they're requiring different things. So I think the biggest thing though, is just, I just, I guess it's just, I mean, I wouldn't see if it's like scaled up because some YouTubers produce stuff that is network level quality. Absolutely. You know, and and in complexity, I would say not quality because, you know, again, some YouTubers are, YouTube is a completely separate thing and I don't think it's any worse or any better in many ways. It's just a completely separate medium, right? With a very different audience. But, um, it's funny cause it has the attention of the younger generation, right? For the first time, I think ever, like I, I grew up loving films and I could, as a 14 year old say, I love films. And I could talk to a 30 year old and they say, I love films too. We love films. Now you talk to a 15 year old, they're like, I love YouTubers or YouTube. And then you could talk to a 40 year old and be like, I don't care about YouTube. I love films still, you know, it's a, there's a weird divide there, but it's interesting. Cause like, I, I think from a filmmaking standpoint, like, and not in the traditional sense, but if you're interested in picking up a camera and making videos, like there's never been a better time to do that than now. Everybody's got a screen in their hand. Whereas even when I was, when I was young, like my route to like become working in film, like, and it was a, it was, it felt like a long shot, you know, it's like you have to join the union and the Toronto film industries, they're shooting a lot, but it's not like the LA industry or, or, or in New York. Right. And then as I came up through like the whole boom of reality TV and all those networks and everything exploded. So there was way more opportunity 
for me to like work in that space. So that was a huge thing. And if, and if I were starting out now, man, it's like a thousand times bigger. There's so many spaces for you to work in. Like it's actually the viable career point now. Even when I was young, people were like, you're going to be a filmmaker. Like you think you're going to be able to make it? And it was like, and what's making it like making it for me is earning a sustainable living, being happy at what you're doing. Right. And, and I've absolutely achieved that. And, you know, through obviously hard work and luck and there's all those things going. Right. But like, I think if you're small getting into it now, it's like, man, you have so many avenues to go through. It's like, I, I tell man, it's, there's no better time to do it than now. And then the cost of gear is so accessible as well. Right. Coming back to the whole vintage lens thing, like you don't have to go out and spend $3,000 on a lens to experiment with it to help your craft. Right. Mm, so I dig that. Yeah. Uh, so I have to ask then, um, do you ever, because there is no better time to be able to put your work out there and um, make a living doing it, you know, now because of YouTube, is is there a, a goal eventually, you think, to do YouTube full-time and not, not do the editing gig? Or uh, is it strictly just for for fun and to, to keep the creativity going? Well, it's definitely, it's weird. I, I feel like... And this is probably because I, you know, in my twenties, I busted my ass to, to get to where I am now to develop, to build a reputation where mm-hmm. I don't have to go out and hustle. People come to me, like I'm getting emails, what's your availability in three months from now, four months from now, I'm lucky that way, but that didn't come easy. Like I, I had to do a lot of work in my twenties and especially when I was like starting out, like I was like all of my free time was I was working at much music by night. And then I was doing freelance event work during the day. Right. So weekends were occupied. All my spare time was pretty much occupied. Like I enjoyed doing it, but like it was hard. And I think YouTube is YouTube rewards heavily, but you have to, I feel, I personally feel like I have less control over that. And I'm not sure if it's because of how old I am or my topic, uh, subject matter. Cause like there's people who are making very amazing, like incredible livings on it. And I think like, I would love to just be able to have full control over, over what I do in terms of like the content I choose. But I think, I, I think given where I'm at, I think I, I kind of want to keep it as a creative outlet. Cause I think that's what will keep it passionate this, as opposed to like, if it becomes like a full business for me, then that might compromise it. You know what I mean? Like, and maybe I could, yeah. if I'm not doing the day thing, then maybe that gets easier. You know, I, I, I love talking. I love working with brands. I love, love doing that stuff when I was, when I was doing event stuff. Right. I just, I love the collaborative collaborative aspect that comes with production work. And I think if I was just doing it for me and this was the thing, then I, I, it might be hard for me for me to grow in the sense of my creative, my, my creativity. Cause if I don't work with people who are better than me, then I'm not going to learn. I feel like I'm not going to learn anything. Right. Like it's, it's got to the point in my career where it's like not necessarily what I work on, but it's who I work with. Like who are the, who are the showrunners who are running this thing? Like it's because that can change, that can change your experiences. Fundamentally, I think if you're working on game of Thrones or if you're working on, 
a realty show. Like you could have the exact same set of problems, just slightly packaged differently in different stakes. So Game of Thrones, the problem's the same, but it's a it's a $10 million problem as opposed to a two hundred thousand dollar problem. Right? But the problems are fundamentally the same. It's something I've kind of learned having worked in New York and in LA and in London. And I was just like, my God, like doesn't matter what I work on, it's all it's all the same. So like it really comes down to like who you're working with. So like people who inspire you, people who like, I like working for people who challenge me. It's just like, Oh my God, like I, I would have gone, I would have gone to the same old pattern had I not, had you not challenged me on that one section of something in order for me to grow. Right. So, and I think that YouTube, you can definitely do that, but maybe, I don't know. I just, it's hard for me to visualize it because it's, that hasn't been my world for so long. Like for me, YouTube is me in my office or out, you know, like dealing with, it's not, it's not, it's not collaborative in a greater sense. Um, but I think it's, I think like it's, and I just think that lack, I feel like you just don't necessarily have as much control over how it gets distributed. Like you could bust your ass on something. And like, if I bust my ass on something on a series and other people are watching it, they recognize that you brought value to this. I want you on my next show, period. You could do the same thing for YouTube, but if the algorithm doesn't pick you up or, you know, like you're not, and it's, it's, it's just like all that effort goes to nothing, you know? And, and I don't, you, you could get lucky with it or you could hit, tap into some, you might have some personality, you know, trait that people who are watching that just love and they, they, they hit it up, but it's just, it's tough, you know, like I think it's very foreign to me and I think that's ultimately what it is. I, I love it that the option is there, not necessarily for me, but maybe for other people. I definitely think it's a, it, it, even if you're going to go full-time, it's definitely a, a way if you want to improve your craft and, and it can help you in whatever professional, if you're even just building a business, like whatever your business is, you can, video is an important factor of, of the advertising of it, right? Or just brand awareness. So yeah, I think that's it. Long winded answer, but I've thought about it for a while. It's uh, and, and, well, it's awesome that you've, you've given it some thought. And I think, um, you know, it shows how serious you take both aspects and not just, um, you know, just making quick decisions. I, I think it's, like you said, it's awesome that it's there for people to be able to do. Um, but it doesn't have to be, I think a lot of people jump into it thinking like you have to make it something you can also just make it for you and for your creativity. And that's, it's awesome that that's what you're doing. And, um, your passion, it, it, if you're doing it for a job, I think you can see, you could see how it could suck the passion out of what you're, you're trying to put out there. So it's awesome that you're trying to put the content first and, and your creativity first. So what's, what's, uh, you know, kind of to wrap things up, what does the future hold for the channel? Are are we, are we sticking with the vintage lenses or do you feel like, you know, is it going to adapt to different things? I I think it's, it's, uh, it's funny because I've experimented with I've experimented with certain things. Like if I look at my top videos now, it's one is how to transfer VHS tapes. <laughs> the second one is like how to multicam edit in Premiere. So I just did a quick tutorial on how to do multicam. So, and then I think the third one is one of my vintage lens reviews. So like if I were to look at that, I I would be like, well, maybe I should go into editing. Because I mean, editing is my thing. Like I, I feel like, and I... But I, I think the core for me is like, if I'm going to do editing, I don't want to teach people how to do specific stuff. I'd like to go into the deeper dive, like the, 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 why we do things and, 
and how we can change that. I mean, like the philosophies of it, but I don't know if I, I want to do video essays. So like, I've been struggling with that for like years. Cause like, that's my day job. Why wouldn't I just go into something that I'm so familiar with, but I keep pulling back from it in some strange way. Um, so I think, I don't know, it's tough to say, I, I think I'm going to stay the course and then, but continue to sort of experiment. Like, I think I put out 26 videos in 2020. I'm going to try to do more. And it's like, I can't always like lens reviews take a while. I have to go out and shoot with them for a while. And I, there's a whole, I can't just, just do like lens reviews, but like, I don't know. I, I like the idea of, of, of like kind of continuing on with this evolving this sort of format that I've kind of got going on pseudo documentary, but in the YouTube space, just cause it's fun for me. And then I don't know, just see where it goes. It's tough. Like I'm bad at planning strategy, <laughs> <laughs> but you're, you're great at planning videos. Um, no, thanks, well, that's awesome, Mark. Uh, I look forward to seeing how the channel evolves over time and, um, I love the the content, so keep at it. And you know, thanks for joining me on the podcast, dude. It, it's it's awesome. Well, yeah, thank you for having me. This is a coveted place to be for sure. There's some pretty fantastic people you've had on, so I feel <laughs> honored thanks, personally man. to be here. Yeah, you're doing a great job. I I really appreciate it. Um, feel don't feel like you have to uh, you know continue to make lens reviews because I will continue to spend money on lenses. Though, so. <laughs> yeah, good. <laughs> Be kind. Um, All right, well, but yeah, where where can uh, if people want to check out your your channel, which they absolutely should because it's amazing. Where can they find? Mm -hmm. you? Uh, yeah, just under my name, I guess, Mark Holtz on YouTube, uh, H-O-L-T-Z-E. And then I'm on Twitter as well. I don't even know what my Twitter handle is. I think it's M Holtz and then Instagram as well, which I like, you know, those, those, those platforms are nice, like Twitter and Instagram, just cause I try to like combine all of the offer different elements in each one. So like Twitter is obviously the best place to have a conversation. Instagram is a nice place to see kind of what I'm working on. If you want to see behind the scenes stuff or just like get sneak peeks at what's coming up. Um, but yeah, that's that. Those are my places, I guess. Awesome. Well guys, all that'll link, uh, be linked down in the show notes. Of course, go check out Mark's channel. It's absolutely amazing. You will feel like you're watching a documentary on camera lenses. It's, it's fantastic. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you rate it in the Apple podcast player and leave a written review. It really does help get the show out there. And, you know, if you're watching the video version, uh, give it a thumbs up. I hope you have enjoyed seeing a little bit of the behind the scenes on how these podcasts actually go when we're recording them. All right, guys, I'll talk to you in the next episode.